Welcome to Classical Stuff, a show with no fluff, where we, gentlemen three, meet to talk with thee of rhymes, ancient and new. Alas, my rhymes are few. Hello, welcome to Classical Stuff. In light of today's topic, I just wrote that. It took me like 10 seconds. Does sounds that blow sounds like right it. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you did not have Graham doing your introduction, who, who I believe writes like sonnets in 30 seconds. So I thought it was lovely. Thank you, AJ, for being supportive, unlike some people on this podcast. I'm talking about myself, not Graham, to be clear. Uh, we are talking about the rhyme of the ancient mariner. My name is Thomas Magby. I'm joined, as always, by curmudgeon himself, Graham Donaldson. I feel bad. I'm sorry, Thomas. Yeah, as you should. And the pleasant, joyful core of this podcast, AJ Hanna. The heart and soul podcast. The heart and soul as it ought to be. Uh, My rhyme is bad, but I hear Coleridge's is not. So, uh, AJ, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And it's one of those rare episodes where we can actually give you the entire thing we are studying. I can actually teach you the thing, right? Not just sort of summarize it for you, but you get to hear the poem in its entirety. And then we'll talk about it. And I will also talk a little bit about Taylor, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So what should I do first? The history of the guy? Let's, let's, let's talk about let's the guy. Let's do some STC. Let's do some uh, history. history. Good, old, good old Coleridge the guy. So he was born the 21st of October in 1772 in Ottery St. Mary in Devon, England. His dad was Reverend John Coleridge, a vicar of St. Mary's, headmaster of the King's School, which was a free grammar school established by King Henry VIII. Sammy was the youngest of 10 by Reverend Coleridge, by his second wife, Dang. plus three by his first wife. Wow. So the youngest of 13. That is a dang lot of kids. As a youngster, he took no pleasure in boyish sports, but read incessantly and played by himself. <laughs> so he was a treat to hang around. Right. When his dad died at, at eight years old, Coleridge was eight, not the dad. He went to <laughs> Christie's Hospital, which was a charity, and he remained there throughout his childhood, childhood studying and writing. He actually wrote about a really cool teacher, that he had during this time. And it makes me want to model myself after this guy. He was kind of rough and severe. So here, here's the quote. Yeah, but Coleridge doesn't turn out great. He does not, but the teacher was good. <laughs> oh, okay. I enjoyed the inestimable advantage of a very sensible, though at the time a very severe master. At the same time that we were studying the Greek tragic poets, he made us read Shakespeare and Milton as lessons. And they were the lessons too, which he required most time and trouble to bring up so as to escape his censure. I learned from him that poetry even that of the loftiest and seemingly that of the wildest odes had a logic of its own, as severe as that of science, and more difficult because more subtle, more complex, and dependent on more and fugitive causes. In our own compositions, at least for the last three years of our school education, he showed no mercy to phrase, metaphor, or image unsupported by a sound sense, or where the same sense might have been conveyed with equal force and dignity in plainer words. I like this guy already. Right. Right? So if they had a really complicated sentence, he said, you could have said that more plainly with the exact same force. Fix it. And in fancy, I can almost hear him now exclaiming, harp, harp, liar, pen and ink boy, you mean. Muse boy, muse, your nurse's daughter, you mean. Pierian spring, oh, I, the cloister pump, I suppose. So they were had all Dang. these lofty words, and he's like, ah, you mean your nurse's daughter that you had a crush on, you do this. <laughs> Be this as it may, there was one custom of our masters, which I cannot pass over in silence because I think it worthy of imitation. He would often permit our theme exercises, so their essays, to accumulate till each lad had four or five to be looked over. Then placing the whole number abroad on his desk, 
he would ask the writer why this or that sentence might not have been found as appropriate a place under this or that other thesis. And if no, found, no satisfying answer could be returned and two faults of the same kind were found in one exercise, the irrevocable verdict followed, the exercise was torn up, and another of the same subject had to be reproduced, or had to be produced in addition to the task of the day. So he, you'd have five essays, and if you could find two problems in one of them, he tore the thing up and made you write another. What a baller. Yeah. Sounds great. Is that, um, this is who you aspire to be as well? Well, we, they would never let us do it. Why not? Oh, it's, that's a school for, like, people, that's like, they want their kids to be able to write really well. Probably a and not very, the school. Not no, so no I'm just saying. I'm just <laughs> and probably a lot fewer pupils, right? A lot, like, lot fewer pupils more and uh, more time. Yeah, we we get through less books. Anyway, we don't need to get into it. <laughs> in nineteen between 1971 and or sorry 1791 and 1794, he attended Jesus College, named after a pretty important fellow, in Cambridge. And in 72, he won the Brown Gold Medal for an ode attacking the slave trade. The Brown Gold Medal. Brown, well, Brown with an E. Oh, so uh, some dude's name. Yeah. yeah. In 1793, he enlisted in the King's Light Dragoons under a false name, Silas Tompkin Cumberbatch. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he, <laughs> they you don't think someone like sniffed that on. out? Yeah, yeah. He really leaned into that one, didn't he? Uh, it may be because he was in debt or because he'd been rejected by Mary Evans, a girl oh. that he really liked, and she didn't like him. Bummer. Oh, we've all been there. And yeah. so his brothers arranged... Join the army. <laughs> So to get over I, heartbreak? Yeah. I had an interview one time. What? what was his name? Silas Cumberbatch? Silas Tomkin Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> so I had an interview one time with this kid, and I did not STC, get, get the Samuel job. STC, Taylor Coleridge, Silas Tomkin Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah, yeah. smart. Anyway, cool. Anyway, this kid told me, or told the, the interviewer, they're like, why are you here? And he's like, well, I actually used to work for you guys, and then the same day, I broke up with my girlfriend, bought a car, crashed a car, and enlisted for the army. <laughs> and, and now I'm here, and I'm a, like a, a captain, and I want to work for Best Buy again. And I was like, I ain't getting this job. This kid, <laughs> I got it. I got dreadlocks, and I'm kind of nerdy. He's going to win. Anyway, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. You, okay, you, his brothers... You did not get the job. I did not I'm get so the sorry. job. No, yeah. no, no. I was also really it's, bad at interviewing at the time. <laughs> really bad. They asked, why do you think you would work really hard. Uh-huh. And I was like, because you don't own, own my mind, man. Like, I can... <laughs> you actually said that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could have been there. It sounds incredible. <laughs> it's not a good... Yeah. It's like, I'll do whatever as long as I can think about philosophy and stuff. I definitely did not get the job. Yeah. Okay. His brothers arranged for his discharge under the by reason of insanity. And he went back to Jesus College and never got a degree from there. Uh, he and his buddy at some point wanted to start a utopian commune called... Pantisocracy mm. in Pennsylvania. Didn't pan out. <laughs> nope. In 1795, he got married to a woman, woman named Sarah Fricker and separated with her after their fourth child because mm. they eventually just didn't like each other very much. In 1976, he re- released his first volume of poems. It was okay. Uh, <laughs> in 95, he met William Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy. Uh, he kind of got into opium in that same yeah. time. So he wrote Kubla Khan, one of his more famous poems, as a result of an opium dream. And in 98, he and Wordsworth published a joint volume called The Lyrical Ballads, which is a very important book of poetry mm-hmm. because it started the English Romantic Age. The real star of that book was The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Do you have anything more to say about it, Graham? Like, no, do you just, know much about that book? Yeah, I mean, The Lyrical Ballads, uh, I did... Um, 
uh, I did a lot of work with Wordsworth in my undergrad, so I did a big undergrad thesis on oh, Wordsworth. Really? Not on the lyrical ballads, but on his prelude, which is written, you know, roughly around the same time or in the same style. Yep. Um, of just yes, the, the, the beginning of English Romanticism, moving poetry away from sort of like the staid, formulaic Alexander Pope rhyming couplet mm-hmm. kind of thing to a free flowing, um, uh, ly- lyrical. Um, ballad. I mean, that's why, that's why they called it that. A free-flowing blank verse that doesn't have a constraint in terms of a... I mean, it's blank verse, so it has... it has It's iambic pentameter, but it doesn't have the same kind of structure that poetry had at the time, so... Yeah, he, um, he kind of deviates from his... So you don't have, like... Uh, you know, you don't have... Uh, hexameters where you're, you're, where you're having, like, six lines and then things change and then things change again, and you you package everything in, in quatrains or whatever, or it's it is blank verse from top to bottom. All the only thing that you have is just 10 syllables per line. And it's, then it's free flowing from there. So, which sort of sounds really complicated, but if you just went and you read just like, um, Alex, like the, the exercise I give my students is we, we read some Alexander Pope cause it's very like formulaic. And then you read Wordsworth and you realize this is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, it says different, you know, it's, it's the romanticism. So it's the Beethoven. It's the, it's the removing of sort of the, 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 the structure of classical. Yeah. Anyway. There you go. He briefly consi- considered a career in ministry in a Unitarian church. And this is not, I think, the Unitarians as we see them now. They were Unitarians mm-hmm. that said, had, had different doctrines about the Trinity. They said Jesus was not of the same substance of, as God, and they kind of wanted to go back to the original view, which meant that he was, you know, breathed by God, but not divine. They rejected original sin, but uh, they were largely still Christian and not probably the same Unitarian church that we have now. Uh, he did not go into ministry. Instead, he got a letter from a friend, Josiah Wedgwood, that said, I will give you money and help you out with your debts if you give up your ministerial career. <laughs> Coleridge accepted, (laughs) so did not go into the ministry. In 98, Wordsworth and Cole went to Germany. Coleridge eventually decided to go go his own way and was traveling by himself and enrolled in a university of Göttingen, where he got interested in German philosophy, specifically Kant, which were ideas that he would champion for the rest of his life. And they were actually pretty foreign in England at the time, Mm. and especially when everyone was about empiricism and that sort of thing, and he was talking about all these German philosophers. Didn't always go very well. He returned to England in 1800 and stayed with Wordsworth for about 18 months, but he was a rough house guest. Uh, He was by this time dependent on opium, laudanum specifically, and had frequent nightmares that would wake up all the kids. He was also an incredibly fussy eater. One story told about how he didn't like salt, so instead he put cayenne pepper on his eggs and ate them from a teacup, which... To me, it just sounds efficient. That sounds honestly. fine. Yeah, like, that sounds, sounds fine. wrong with that. You oh, don't have man. to clean the fork and knife, so yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but oh, you, you, you're thinking he didn't use utensils? He just slurped them. That's what I assume. If it's in a teacup, I got to try that. You can do whatever you want to. That makes sense. No judgment. Yeah, in 1802, yeah, you're, you're already my house guest if you do it. <laughs> yeah, it, it frustrated Dorothy, who was doing all the cooking and right. words were. You know, there, there were just general. Tensions. Yeah, I thought Dorothy was dead by then. She died, she? Dorothy dies early. Anyway. Maybe it's a different uh, maybe book. it's eighteen maybe it's like eighteen oh five or something. Cause, okay, because this is yeah. Because Wordsworth writes his elegiac stanzas about the death of Dorothy. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, in eighteen oh two, he took a nine day walking holiday in the fells of the Lake District. He is credited with the first recorded descent to Scaffell from Scaffell to Mickledore via Broadstand. I don't know what any of those are, but it sounds like a mountainous region. 
Um, though he was more lost than he was passionate for mountaineering. He just kind of didn't go the right way and ended up in the right spot to, to do this descent. He then went to Malta, hoping to improve his health by change of climate and reduce his opium use. And what happened was the opposite. Whoops, more opium. And now a full-blown addict. He was consuming two quarts of laudanum a week. Oh, all week. All right, never mind. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I mean, I don't yeah, know, I don't know the average. How, how potent is that stuff? Is two quarts a lot? Uh, I have no idea. How I much do you know use, Graham? Is. I mean, it's just enough to get through the day. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah two quarts. <laughs> you just got to keep away the itch, yeah, right? Yeah. Just, uh, it essentially took over his life. He separated from his wife, Sarah, in 1808. So this is when everything kind of came to a head. When is that was, Sarah Fricker? I think it is Sarah Fricker. Spelled the same. He fought with Wordsworth in 1810. He then lost part of an annuity in 1811. And worst of all, he was severely constipated, which required oh. regular embarrassing enemas to kind mm. of clear up. Apparently opium does that. I did not know that. About I did opium. not know that either. Yeah. He started a journal called... Just dries you out, huh? Yeah, I guess so. He started a journal called The Friend... <laughs> But it was rambling and disorganized and largely inaccessible for yeah, the populace. But it ran for 25 issues and was some, you know, popular enough that they put it into a book a few times. And, but I think most people just weren't that into it. Between 1810 and 1820, he gave a series of lectures on Shakespeare, and they were inconsistent because you know, he was still wildly addicted oh. to opium. Sometimes he would bring just loose notes and then... Just ramble. Just ramble a ton. And some of those ramblings would go off on rabbit trails that were largely inaccessible to mm. most people. And so, but occasionally he had really, really good ones. Mm-hmm. One of those was his on, on Hamlet. And it actually kind of turned around the view of Hamlet and revived mm. the play's reputation mm. because people had been calling it, you know, kind of not very good. And he actually showed, no, Hamlet was fantastic. And so he, he actually made some difference with those, but they were, you know, inconsistent. Uh, he started and abandoned a translation of Faust. And he, apparently this is kind of a theme in his life. He'll start these big grand projects and then never really finish them. So towards the end of his life, he took residence at Highgate Homes, which was just, just north of London, and he put himself in the care of a physician, James Gilman. So he was able to partially manage his addiction. He finished his book Biographia Literaria and a bunch of poetry of varying quality, and he died in 1834 as a result of heart failure, and which was compounded by a lung disorder, which may have been opium, opium related. Yeah. related. He spent 18 years total under the roof of the Gilman family. The version of the poem we are going to read today is from The Sibylline Leaves, which was published in 1817. He did, I think it was 18 different versions of the poem in his lifetime, just con- consistently updating it. When it first came out, it had really archaic language, and... People thought that it was pretty inaccessible for what it was. And Did the Ancient Mariner? Yeah, the Ancient yeah. Mariner had some it really does. cryptic yeah. spellings F, that were really F weird. and it's got old words. It's, yeah, it's got old words, and people weren't really into it. And so then he republished and just called it the Ancient Mariner mm. without the rhyme, mm. the R-I-M-E. And then he went back to the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. He added some, some comments on the side that helped to explain what was going on, these little explanatory plates. And though that is the version we are reading today is the one with the explanatory plates that mm. was published way later called The Rime of the Ancient Mariner and, and sort of still has none of that old archaic language. Now, before we move on, can yep. we, uh, Coleridge wrote a poem that he wanted as his epitaph. And in fact, he, it is on a, I don't know if he's buried there, but the poem is on a rock. I think he's buried there. Is he, it a limerick? Please tell me. It's, it's not a limerick. A limerick oh, but if I, can, I, can I read it? It's yeah, very please. short. Mm-hmm. So this is the epitaph that is, it's on a walking path where I think he was buried. He was buried like on a, a little pathway, I think in the hill country or the hill district. Sorry, the lake district. 
Although I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, but it's supposed to be something that you would see as you were walking, and you'll hear why. So here it is. This is Epitaph by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. <clears throat> Stop, Christian passerby. Stop, child of God, and read with gentle breast. Beneath this sod a poet lies, or that which once seemed he. Oh, lift one thought in prayer for STC, that he who many a year with toil of breath found death in life, may he here find life in death. Mercy for praise, to be forgiven for fame he asked and hoped through Christ. Do thou the same. Hmm. So at least he had some kind of like sense of of, it sounds like sort of mourning a regret at the end yeah. of his life of opium and kind of dark. It right? is quite dark. The, yeah. the he who found uh, life in death may he find de- death in life. That's kind of a sad sentiment. Yeah, it's not poor guy. Well, don't do drugs, kids. That's a downer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially opium. Yeah, it'll yeah. zonk you right out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so today we are going to read the Rime of the Ancient Mariner in its entirety. Don't worry, it's a pretty engaging poem, and I have pulled the boys, and I got one yes and one no about whether or not I should do it in an old Mariner accent. You at home can decide who you thought said yes and who you thought said no. Donaldson said no, <laughs> and Magby said yes. And I think the audience would have expected the opposite. I, I think, think they would I have. think that's the best yeah. part of it, yeah. And uh, so I am the deciding vote, and I'm going right. to say yes. At least we're going to start with it. If I absolutely shred my vocal cords, then maybe I'll revert to not an ancient mariner. Or if it starts going really off the rails and I end up in some blend of, like, Russian and Irish, then maybe I'll stop. But I'm going to try to make it as exciting as possible, which means that I'm going to do an accent. If you want to skip all that, I totally get it. You're, <laughs> uh, those don't always go very well, so you are more than welcome to skip. But I've given parts to the boys. They are both holding scripts, and we are going to read the whole thing. Are we reading the plates before the stanza or after the stanza? We're going to read them after the stanza. Okay. I think that's fair. Is that, is that right? Yes. So Thomas will be the narrator. Really? He'll you don't be think, wait, you don't the think before that I'm reading them, are the plates a summary of what's about to happen? Yes. They are the summary of the stanza they are next to. So I should it? read them first. We I'm should sorry. read them before. Okay, yeah. cool. Let's read I them thought before. they were like definitions of things, but no, no, these no. are notes that Coleridge put in. Yeah. He put in so that people would understand the poem better. Okay, yeah. Sorry. I think I've... we read them before. I think that makes sense. Okay, let's I try it that way. I get the one about the accent, about you speak doing this in an accent. Graham gets the one about me reading the plates first. This seems fair. We both get something we want from mm-hmm. this reading. Yeah, I think that's good. Okay, this is The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in seven parts. Do we say anything what it's about, or the audience is going to figure it out as we go? They'll figure it out. Okay. I think it's, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. There is a huge gets Latin weird. quote at the beginning. It gets real weird. And I'm not going to read the actual Latin because, oh, I would just butcher that worse than I'm about to butcher this accent. But I do have the translation. Here's the translation of the Latin at the beginning. Easy words. I readily believe that in the totality of things there are more invisible than visible natures. But who shall recount to us the family of all these things, and their degrees and relationships, and distinctive signs and their individual functions? What do they do? What places do they inhabit? The human mind has always solicited knowledge of these matters, but has never attained it. Meanwhile, I do not deny. It is something pleasant to contemplate the image of a greater and better world in the mind as if in a picture, lest the mind, accustomed to the trivia of modern life, should shrink excessively and sink completely into petty musings. But at the same time, one must be intent upon truth, and moderation must be observed, so that we may distinguish the sure from the unsure, day from night. That's from T. Burnett in Archaeology, Archaeology, Philol, page, page 60. I don't know, it's, it's from a thing. Okay, 
So now the actual poem. I promise the actual poem is easier to understand than that was. Yes. Okay. An ancient mariner meeteth three gallants bidden to a wedding feast and detaineth one. That's the plate, and here's the actual text. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stoppest thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met. The feast is set. Mayest hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. <laughs> Hold off! Unhand me, graybeard loon! Eftsoons his hand dropped he. The plate, the wedding guest, is spellbound by the eye of the old seafaring man and constrained <laughs> to hear his tale. This is fun. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his will. The wedding guest sat on a stone. He cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on the, that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered. The harbor cleared. Merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright, and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day, till over the mast at noon. The wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. <laughs> the bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she. Nodding their heads before her goes the merry men... Minstrelsy? Minstrelsy. Minstrelsy. Sorry. The wedding guest, he beat his breast, yet he cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. All right, so you skipped a few plates there. Do we just want to skip the ones well, that are Well, I'm obvious? confused. Only one is marked. Am I supposed to be reading the ones that aren't marked? Yeah, I mean... Sorry. Okay. If, do, you guys, do you guys want to skip the plates or keep them? I think we should skip them. Okay. I'm down with that. Is that okay? Yeah, we can explain kind of what happens if if it gets confusing. You yeah. guys can stop. Otherwise, I'm interrupting every two stanzas. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. So far, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. So it's back to me? Yes. And now the storm blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his oar, taking wings, and chased us south along. With sloping masts and dipping prow, as who pursued with yell and blow, still treads the shadow of his foe and forward bends his head. The ship drove fast. Loud roared the blast, and southward I we fled. And now there came both mist and snow, and it grew wondrous cold, and ice, mast high, came floating by, as green as emerald. And through the drifts the snowy clift did send a dismal sheen, nor shapes of Ben, nor beasts we ken, the ice was all between. The ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around, it cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swound. At length did cross an albatross. Through the fog it came, as if it had been a Christian soul. We hailed it in God's name. It ate the food it ne'er had eat, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit. The helmsman steered us through. Yay. Well, the albatross saved us. Yeah. And a good south wind sprung up behind, the albatross did follow. And of every day, for food or play, came to the mariner's hello. You want to you be our, our hello? Hello-ing. Hello. <laughs> In Mr. Cloud on Master Shroud, it perched for Vespers nine, whiles all the night, through fog smoke white, glimmered the white moonshine. God save the ancient mariner 
from the fiends that plague thee thus, why lookest thou so? With my crossbow, I shot the albatross. Whoa. What the heck? The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, part two. Shot the bird that saved you from the ice. It's messed up. The sun now rose upon the right. Out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow. Nor any day for food or play came to the mariners. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And I had done an hellish thing. And it would work em woe, for all averred I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, said they, the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow. Nor dim nor red like God's own head, the glorious sun uprist. Then all averred I had killed the bird that brought the fog and mist. Twas right, said they, such birds to slay that bring the fog and mist. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow streamed off free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze, the sails dropped down, twas sad as sad could be, and we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right up above the mast did stand no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Are right, you guys following? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, went through the South Pole, they passed all the ice, the albatross came, they saved, f- saved him, found the way through the ice, and then he shot the albatross, and everyone's like, oh, you big jerk. And then... But then things are okay. But then things got nicer, and they right. kept going, they're like, oh, you should have killed that albatross. Good job, buddy. And now they are becalmed, and they're not, they don't have any wind, and they're stuck. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop. To drink. We should probably read the uh, the plate on that line. And yep. the albatross begins to be avenged. Yeah, that, one's, that yeah, seems yeah. important. Right, hold on, I gotta wet the whistle. That's it's <laughs> doing heck on my vocal cords. Worth it. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, is the accent okay? Should I? It's wonderful. Him? No, you're okay. doing great. Don't ask Graham. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's keep going. The very deep did rot. Oh Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. About, about, in reel and rout, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, burned green and blue and white. And some in dreams assured were of the spirit that plagued us so. Nine fathoms deep he had followed us from the land of mist and snow. And every tongue, through utter drought, was withered at the root, we could not speak no more than if we'd been choked with soot. Ah, well a day. What evil lurks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. <laughs> so they make you wear it? Yeah, they make, yeah. You, they make you wear the bird. Now, the, we should probably also read that wacky... Uh, uh, a spirit? That, or the, the plate? Shipmates. Yeah, the wacky plate. All of it? A spirit had followed them. So this is in reference to the part AJ just read. A spirit had followed them, one of the invisible inhabitants of this planet, neither departed souls nor angels, concerning whom the learned Jew Josephus and the Platonic Constantinopolitan 
Michael Sellis may be consulted. There are very they are very numerous, and there is no climate or element without one or more. I mean, it's just good to know. Yeah, very casually <laughs> dropping that one. Yeah, I mean, you can talk to Josephus or uh, Michael Sellis. They'll they'll they'll, they'll, tell, you they'll, they'll tell you all about it. They're yeah. everywhere. These wacky spirits. <laughs> so we're going into the rhyme of the ancient mariner, part the third. Just because we're here, I'll read it. The shipmates in their sore distress would fain throw the whole guilt on the ancient mariner in sign whereof they hang the dead seabird round his neck. That's gross. Yep. You're wear a big dead bird. Mm-hmm. There passed a wearied time. Each throat was parched and glazed each eye. A weary time, a weary time. How glazed each weary eye. When looking westward, I beheld a something in the sky. At first it seemed a little speck, and then it seemed a mist. It moved and moved and took at last a certain shape I wist. A speck, a mist, a shape I wist. And still it neared and neared, as if it dodged a water sprite, it plunged and tacked and veered. What throat unslacked and black lips baked, we could nor laugh nor wail. Through, ut- through utter drought all dumb we stood. I bit my arm, I sucked the blood, and cried, A sail! A sail! With throats unslaked, with black lips baked, agape they heard me call, Gramercy! They for joy did grin, and all at once their breath drew in, as they were drinking all. I see, I see, I cried, she tacks no more. Hither to work us wheel. Without a breeze, without a tide, she steadies with upright keel. The western wave was all aflame. The day was nigh well done. Almost upon the western wave rested the bright, broad bright sun. When that strange shape drove suddenly betwixt us and the sun, and straight the sun was flecked with bars. Heaven's mother sent us grace, as if through a dungeon grate he peered with broad and burning face. Alas, thought I, and my heart beat loud, how fast she nears and nears. Are those her sails that glance in the sun like restless gossamers? Are those her ribs through which the sun did pierce through a grate? And is that woman all her crew? Is that death? Are, are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was white as leprosy. The nightmare, life in death, was she who thicks man's blood with cold. The naked hulk alongside came, and the twain were casting dice. The game is done, I've won, I've won, quoth she, and whistles thrice. The sun's rim dips, the stars rush out, at one stride comes the dark. With far-heard whisper o'er the sea, off shot the specter bark. We listened and looked sideways up, fear at the heart as at a cup my lifeblood seemed to sip. The stars were dim and thick the night, the steersman's face by his lamp gleamed white. From the sails the dew did drip, till clomb above the eastern bar the horned moon with one bright star within the nether tip. One after one, by the star-dog moon, too quick for groan or sigh, each turned his face with a ghastly pang and cursed me with his eye. Four times fifty living men, and I heard not a sigh nor groan. With a heavy thump, a lifeless lump, they dropped down one by one. Their souls did from their bodies fly. They fled to bliss or woe, and every soul it passed me by. 
like the whiz of my crossbow. So the ship of death kills everybody? The ship of death comes and death and life and death play dice for the souls of the crew. Mm. And then life and death wins, at least she wins his soul. But everyone else, death wins. Everyone else, death wins. And then they all die. Kick it. And they all like, with like giving them dirty looks as they go. Yeah, they're all get 200 guys, right? Four times 50 living men. And they don't sigh or groan. They just sort of drop where they're standing. And but he stays alive because life and death won him. Yep. Yes. Cool. So he is going to go through some sort of life and death thing. All right. Remind okay, me. man, my voice is. Whew. You're doing great. Okay. You can feel free to drop the accent. Okay. The I rhyme. Don't, I don't want to though. Like it's, it's doing good. It. it just hurts. You're doing great. Oh, the wedding guest is back. The rhyme of the ancient mariner, part the fourth. I fear thee, ancient mariner. I fear thy skinny hand. And thou art long and long and lank and brown, as is the ribbed sea sand. I fear thee and thy glittering eye, and thy skinny hand so brown. Fear not, fear not, thou wedding guest. This body drop not down. Alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea. And never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. They many men so beautiful, and they all dead did lie. And a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on. And so did I. I looked upon the rotting sea and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the rotting deck and there the dead men lay. I looked to heaven and tried to pray. But or ever a prayer had gushed, a wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. I closed my eyes and kept them close and the balls like pulses beat and the sky and the sea and the sea and the sky lay like a load on my weary eye, and the dead were at my feet. The cold sweat melted from their limbs, nor rot nor reek did they. The look with which they looked on me had never passed away. So they're all still giving him dirty looks, even even as they're dead. An orphan's curse would drag to hell a spirit from on high, but oh, more horrible than that is the curse in a dead man's eye. Seven days... Seven nights I saw that curse, and yet I could not die. The moving moon went up the sky, and nowhere did abide. Softly she was going up, and a star or two beside. Her beams bemocked the sultry main, like April hoarfrost spread. But where the ship's huge shadow lay, the charmed water burnt alway, a still and awful red. Beyond the shadow of the ship, I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white. And when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire. Blue, glossy green, and velvet black. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. Oh, happy living things! No tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray. And from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. The note on that last part was the spell begins to break. Yep. This is the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Because he, like, prays some beautiful snakes? Yep. Okay. He blesses the the snakes, and the the albatross falls off. Part the fifth. Oh, sleep. It is a gentle thing, beloved, from pole to pole. Mm -hmm. To marry queen, the braise be given. She sent the gentle sleep from heaven that slid into my soul. The silly buckets on the deck that had so long remained, I dreamt that they were filled with dew, and when I woke, it rained. My lips were wet, 
My throat was cold. My garments all were dank. Sure, I had drunken in my dreams, and still my body drank. I moved and could not feel my limbs. I was so light, almost. I thought that I had died in sleep, and was a blessed ghost. And soon I heard a roaring wind. It did not come near, but with its sound it shook the sails that were so thin and sere. The upper air burst into life, and a hundred fire flags sheen. To and fro they hurried about, and to and fro, and in and out, the wan stars danced between. And the coming wind did roar more loud, and the sails did sigh like sledge, and the rain poured down from one black cloud. The moon was at its edge. The thick black cloud was cleft, and still the moon was at its side, like waters shot from a high crag, and lightning fell with never a jag, a river steep and wide. The loud wind never reached the ship. Yet, now the ship moved on. Beneath the lightning and the moon, the dead men gave a groan. Dead men, would you groan? <laughs> they groaned, they stirred, they all uprose, nor spake, nor moved their eyes. It had been a strange, even in a dream, to have seen those dead men rise. The helmsman steered. The ship moved on, yet never a breeze up blew. The mariners, mariners all gan work the ropes where they were wont to do, they raised their limbs like lifeless tools. We were a ghastly crew. The body of my brother's son stood by me, knee to knee. The body and I pulled up one rope, but he said not to me. I fear thee, ancient mariner. Is was you? I think it's me. Yeah. Be calm, thou wedding guest. Twas not those souls that fled in pain, which to their courses came again, but a troop of spirits blessed. Oh, okay. For when it dawned, they dropped their arms and clustered round the mast. Sweet souls rose slowly through their mouths and from their bodies passed. So it was, was not their dead men's souls came back. It was just like some angels or something. Getting cool. in there. Sweet spirits. But now by the souls of the men, nor by demons of earth or middle air, but by a blessed troop of angelic spirits sent down by the invocation of the guardian saint. Well, thank you, Thomas. You are most welcome. For when it dawned, they dropped... Oh, I did that part. Uh, around, around, each flew each sweet sound, then darted to the sun. Slowly the sounds came back again, now mixed, now one by one. Sometimes a dropping from the sky, I heard the skylark sing. Sometimes all little birds that are. How they seemed to fill the sea and air with their sweet jargoning. And now it was like all <coughs> instruments, now like a lonely flute. And now it was an, an angel's song that makes the heavens be mute. It ceased, yet still the sails made on. A pleasant noise till noon. A noise like of a hidden brook in the leafy month of June. Can you do a brook? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> that to the sleeping woods all night singeth a quiet tune. Till noon we quietly sailed on, yet never a breeze did breathe. Slowly and smoothly went the ship, moved onward from beneath. Under the keel nine fathom deep, from the land of mist and snow, the spirit slid, and it was he that made the ship to go. The sails at noon left off their tune, and the ship stood still also. The sun, right up above the mast, had fixed her to the ocean. But in a minute she gan stir, with a short, uneasy motion, backwards and forwards half her length, with a short, uneasy motion. Then, like a pawing horse let go, she made a sudden bound. It flung the blood into my head, and I fell down in a swound. Is that my, am I pronouncing that right? A swoon? Yeah. Swoon? A swoon, swoon, swoon. I mean... Supposed to rhyme with bound, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it might be half rhyme. I don't know. Yeah. 
How long in that same fit I lay, I have not to declare. But ere my living life returned, I heard and in my soul discerned two voices in the air. Is it he? Quoth one. Is this the man by him who died on cross with his cruel is it bow? Is it, bow, yeah. But it's not bow. Okay. With his cruel bow, he laid full low the harmless albatross. The spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow, he loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. The other was a softer voice, as soft as honeydew, quoth he. The man hath penance done, and penance more will do. That was very honeydewish. Thank nice you. Time. The Realm of the Ancient Mariner, part the sixth. But tell me, tell me, speak again, thy soft response renewing. What make that ship drive on so fast? What is the ocean doing? Still as a slave before his lord, the ocean hath no blast. His great bright eye most silently upon the moon is cast. If he may know which way to go, for she guides him smooth or grim. See, brother, see how graciously she looketh down on him. But why drives on that ship so fast without or wave or wind? The air is cut away before and closes from behind. Fly, brother, fly, more high, more high, or we shall be belated. For slow and slow that ship will go when the mariner's trance is abated. I woke, and we were <coughs> sailing on as in a gentle weather. T'was night, calm night, the moon was high, the dead men stood together. All stood together on the deck. For a charnel dungeon fitter, all fixed me on me their stony eyes that in the moon did glitter. Pang, the curse with which they died had never passed away. I could not dry my, draw my eyes from theirs nor turn them up to pray. And now the spell was snapped. Once more I viewed the ocean green and looked far forth yet little saw of what else been seen, of what had else been seen. Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. But soon there breathed a wind on me, nor sound no motion made. Its path was not upon the sea, in ripple or in shade. It raised my hair. It fanned my cheek. Like, a, it's fun that our, whoever's cleaning outside just turned on the, uh, the vacuum. Sounds like a, it's the wind. Yeah. Like a meadow gale of spring, it mingled strangely with my fears, yet it felt like a welcoming. Swiftly, swiftly flew the ship, yet she sailed softly too. Sweetly, sweetly blew the breeze, on me alone it blew. Oh, dream of joy, is this indeed the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Is this mine own country? We drifted o'er the harbor bar, and I with sobs did pray. Oh, let me be awake, my God, or let me sleep alway. The harbor bar was clear as glass, so smoothly it was strewn, and on the bay the moonlight lay in the shadow of the moon. The rock shone bright, the kirk no less, that stands above the rock. The moonlight steeped in silentness the steady weathercock, and the bay was white with silent light, till rising from the same, full many shapes that shadows were in crimson colors came. A little distance from the prow, those crimson shadows were. I turned my eyes upon the deck. Oh, Christ, what I saw there. Each course lay flat, lifeless and flat. And by the holy rood, a man all night, a seraph man, stood every, on every course there stood. This seraph band, each waved his hand. It was a heavenly sight. 
They stood as signals to the land, each one a lovely light. This seraph band each waved his hand. No voice did they impart. No voice but, oh, the silence sank like music on my heart. But soon I heard the dash of oars. I heard the pilots cheer. My head was turned perforce away, and I saw a boat appear. The pilot and the pilot's boy, I heard them coming fast. Dear Lord in heaven, it was a joy the dead men could not blast. I saw a third. I heard his voice. It is the hermit good. He singeth loud his godly hymns that he makes in the wood. He'll shrieve my soul. He'll wash away that albatross's blood. This is the rhyme of the ancient mariner, part the seventh. This hermit good lives in that wood which slopes down to the sea. How loudly his sweet voice he rears. He loves to talk the mariners with mariners that come from a far country. He kneels at morn and noon and eve. He hath a cushion plump. It is the moss that wholly hides the rotted old oak stump. The skiff boat neared. I heard them talk. Why, this is strange, I trow. But where are those lights so many and fair that signal made but now? Strange, by my faith, the hermit said. And they answered not our cheer. The planks look warped, and see those sails, how thin they are and sear. I never saw aught like to them, unless perchance it were. Brown skeletons of leaves that leg my forest brook along. When the ivy tod is heavy with snow, and the owlet whoops to the wolf below that eats the she-wolf's young. Dear Lord, it hath a fiendish look, the pilot made reply. I am afeard. Push on, push on, said the hermit cheerly. The boat, came, the boat came closer to the ship, but I nor spake nor stirred. And the boat came close beneath the ship, and straight a sound was heard. Under the water it rumbled on, still louder and more dread. It reached the ship, it split the bay, the ship went down like lead. So what would the sound like that be? It came and broke the ship. Like a big crack? Mm, boat just splits in two. Maybe like, bloop. <laughs> 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 Stunned by that loud and dreadful sound, <laughs> which sky and ocean smote. <laughs> like in Mario. <laughs> <laughs> like one that hath been seven days drowned, my body lay afloat. But swift as dreams, myself I found within the pilot's boat. Upon the whirl where sank the ship, the boat spun round and round, and all was still, save that the hill was telling of the sound. I moved my lips. The pilot shrieked. Ah! Am I the pilot? You yeah. are the pilot. Uh. <laughs> and fell down in a fit. The holy hermit raised his eyes and prayed where he did sit. I took the oars. The pilot's boy, who now doth crazy go, laughed aloud and long, and all the while his eyes went to and fro. So this is the, you want to be the crazy boy? Quoth he. Full plain I see, the devil knows how to row. That's, that was so good. Thank you. And now all in my own country I stood on the firm land. The hermit stepped forth from the boat and scarcely he could stand. Oh, shrieve me, shrieve me, holy man. The hermit crossed his brow. Say quick. Quoth he. I bid thee say what manner of man art thou. Forthwith this frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free. Since then, at uncertain hour, that agony returns, until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. That moment that his face I see, I know the man that must hear me 
to him my tale I teach. What loud uproar burst from that door? The wedding guests are there. But in the garden bower the bride and the bridemaid singing are, and hark the little vesper bell, which biddeth me to prayer. O wedding guest, this soul hath been alone on a wide, wide sea. So lonely twas that God himself scarce seemed there to be. O sweeter than the marriage feast, tis sweeter far to me to walk together to the kirk with a good, goodly company. To walk together to the kirk and all together pray, while each to his great father bends, old men and babes and loving friends and youths and maidens gay. Farewell, farewell. But this I tell to thee, thou wedding guest, he prayeth well who loveth well, both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best who loveth best, all things both great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. The mariner, whose eye is bright, whose beard with age is hoar, is gone, and now the wedding guest turned from the bridegroom's door. He went like one that hath been stunned and is of sense forlorn, a sadder and a wiser man. He rose the morrow morn. Okay, and that is the rhyme of the ancient mariner. So if you've never heard it before, now you have. And I hope that my accent didn't make you puke. And I think it was okay. I kept it out up all right. It was great. You, you yeah. did a great job. Okay, so... That poem is freaking weird. It's yeah. so <laughs> weird. Can yeah. we give a quick summary of kind of what happened? So this... Go for it. Go, go, I, mean, oh, I was going to say, yeah. the mariner... I thought maybe you want to rest your voice. Yeah, uh, please. The mariner... Um, so there's a dude going to church because it's a wedding, and then this like crazy dude's like, hey... I have a story. Later on, we find out that the Mariner has, like, an intuition as to who needs to hear the story. And his heart basically bursts into flame until he can get it out. Yeah. And so he tells the story, and he and his crew were sailing somewhere, and um, there was a bird, and he shot the bird. So they went, they were going through the South Pole, I believe, and Mm -hmm. they got locked in ice. There was just ice everywhere. And then the albatross shows up. And, and they get through the ice. They get through the ice, and so it's like, what a friggin' sweet albatross. And he comes every day, and they feed him. And, and whenever they uh, go, hello, yeah, the albatross shows up. The albatross up. shows up, and they're like, this albatross is a bird of good fortune. And then for some reason, the ancient mariner shoots it with his crossbow. Just Thunk. because. Doesn't Just because, no why. reason. And then the boat goes through, like, terrible things. Well, it, it finally gets, like, then there's kind of some mist, and it's not great. And they're like, ah, maybe you should have killed that thing. Yeah. Right? And then they're stuck for like days and days and days with no wind. They're running out of water. And they're they're like thirsty. Clearly, you shouldn't have killed that thing. They they flip flop on it. That's right. And you realize. And then the ship comes and they're like, oh, sweet. The ship is going to save us. And then they realize that it's like a skeleton boat. Yep. Because it passes in front of the sun and they can see the sun. They can see the sun through the the boat. And they're like, that's not good. And, um, (laughs) And then it comes and there's like death and life and death are playing dice. On the boat. Well, we missed the weird part is that when he tries to call out to the boat, they haven't had water in so long oh, that he can't, can't make his voice work. <sighs> yeah. So the way that he does is he bites his own arm, mm-hmm. sucks his own blood to wet his pipes, oh, yeah. and then yells out and to then, the boat. Which is that's not that's which not is pretty good. messed up. Pretty yeah. messed up. And then calls out to the boat, and they're playing dice, and death wins all of the crew, and life in death wins the ancient mariner. So death winning all the crew, it's because the crew becomes complicit in his crime mm-hmm. when they say, yeah, I guess you should have killed that albatross, well, right? So the whole crew kind of gets in on it right there, and that's why they are culpable. And so they all die, and then he doesn't die, and then he's, like, chilling out with the 200 dead sa- sailors for a while. Well, they all have that curse still locked in their That have that curse locked in their And then they write, and then he... What's their bodies, but, like, he, angelic spirits. That's are, right. Those, yeah. The angelic spirits. He blesses, he's like, oh, man, those snakes are friggin' gorgeous. 
And well, uh, yeah, earlier he'd referred to them as just slimy things, yeah. right? I lived on, and so did the slimy things of the sea. That's and then right. after a while, he's like, you know what? Those those snakes are pretty sweet. Yeah. And then uh, angels come down, and, and then angels are like inhabit the like, bodies of yeah. the achievement sailors. unlocked, and then they come down and <laughs> yeah. and uh, um, and and but and, yeah, inhabit the crew, and then the boat moves really, really fast. Moves really fast and yeah. sails home. Well, yeah, and kind of like they help him sail for a little while. Yeah, but they're not singing or not saying anything. They don't say anything. Right. And he's like pulling a rope next to the dead kid of his buddy. Yeah. And he's like, hey, man, how's it going? The kid doesn't say anything. Yep. And then if I remember right, so eventually the spirits go out of those dudes mm-hmm. and the boat stops. And the, there's a, sp- a spirit that's been following them ever since the south. And it's been under the boat and it's been kind of pushing them along. And everything kind of leaves. And so he's not going anywhere. And then he hears these two voices. And they're kind oh, of like yeah. angelic voices. And they say, well, it's it's moving now again. What is causing it to move? And they say, basically, the air is just opening up in front of the boat, and then the air is closing up behind the boat. And so it's causing him to move forward in this weird, angelic way. Sure. And so he gets pushed. And at some point, he, like, in that lurch, he kind of gets knocked unconscious, and finally it rains, and he hasn't been mm. sleeping for a really long time. So he finally gets some sleep. He finally gets some rain. And then it delivers him kind of to the bay. I mean, as soon as it starts raining, you know you're near England. <laughs> <laughs> it's true and then he he can't signal anybody he rides rides in at nighttime and so to signal the people on oh, yeah, the shore the pilot and the pilot's kid and then the hermit who apparently like steer, I guess steer the boat in or like tugboated in to, to to the dock or whatever well the boat doesn't go to the dock so a bunch of oh. angels post up on each of the dead bodies and sort of wave at shore right. like this big just yeah, yeah. angel parade and they're trying to wave down someone to come get this cra- you know crotchety old that's probably why they get the hermit they're like we're probably going to need the priestly hermit right. on this one yep. it's and a weird looking boat so as the, the hermit and the pilot and the pilot's boy kind of near the boat we get that uh, and the boat goes and sinks and sinks and then he finds himself in the boat and as they sail back the the pilot's boy goes bananas. Mm-hmm. He sees the ancient mariner, and the ancient mariner sees his stuff and starts rowing, and he's like, well, the devil can row, and goes mm-hmm. nuts. Right. And then he has the the hermit sort of, he tries to get absolved from the death of the albatross by the hermit, and the hermit says, what kind of man are you? And then he he gives the whole story to the hermit, and it's from that day on that he has to tell this story. And every time he's, yeah, he's compelled to tell it to certain people that he sees, this poor wedding guest, he's just trying to get there in time. <laughs> and then he doesn't even go to the wedding. And he's the kin. Yeah. He's right. like one of the closest kin. Like I cousin. imagine he was the guy who's probably going to give a toast. Yeah. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to go home. And he's a sadder, wiser man the next morning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's, that's the summary. It is a weird, weird tale. There was one year I taught it to my 10th graders. Really? And I'd never again. Why not? Just time. We ran out of time. Okay. Yeah. So what do you guys make of it? What what is what is the meaning? I, I know kind of a little bit of its genesis and a little bit of its theology, but what is what is the crux that you would would you say of this poem? Is there a moral? Is there um, something? Yeah, it's like at the very end. The he prayeth best, who loveth best all things, both great and small. Yep, there you go. So that is I mean it's it's right out there, which is weird for dudes like Coleridge, right? Yep. To just lay the moral right on the front. And somebody actually accused him of not having enough moral, and mm. he's like, Oh contraire, I think it has too much. Maybe cut back to one gallon of opium a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, the rhyme of the ancient. Yes, it's. I, I've often wondered if the moral is like him. Coleridge does this a couple of times. He does this with Kubla Khan, where he'll have this like crazy demonic like hellscape, and then at the end he's like, 
piety. I don't trust God. <laughs> but, yeah, but in the end, but you're like, really? Is that really what you think? Because you're like, clearly you're into like, like weird space ghosts. Yeah, it's like this this cool metal album uh, cover, and then at the end, it's like, remember, kids, go to church. Speaking of metal albums, you should look up the Gustav Dore woodcuts of yeah. this specific one. <laughs> I bet it's crazy. They are. Gustav Dore is a master woodcutter, and his ones for the Divine Comedy are good. Great. These yeah. ones might be better. They are yeah. incredible. Wow. Yeah. I don't really, I mean, it's, what is it? Is, is it an act of, well, he shoots the albatross, and it's just sort of this mindless, violent thing. Yeah, mindless, violent thing against something that is... Helpful and good innocent. and beautiful. Yeah. And but then, that, like, everyone else gets punished except for him yeah, yeah. in a weird way. Well, he's punished by having to, like, be alive. Uh, that's is not it? so bad. I don't know. Gets to have a cool accent and tell a story everywhere he goes. I mean, he does not die, right? Like it's it is somewhat strange that he does not really pay the penalty in the way that the crew members do. Okay, hear me out. I, I have some weird theories I've sort of cooked up about here. I think this is also a story about just general salvation. So he is he eventually earns life in death, right? Mm-hmm. Death to self. Doesn't that sound like sounds like the scripture where mm. you are? dead to self but alive to God. Uh He is living a life in death. And it might refer to just his time on the boat, but it might refer to times afterwards. And you were wondering why the hermit on the boat. Did you notice anything weird about the three people chosen to be the things that came and got him? Hermit, pilot, pilot, son? Is that? Does that sound like anything to you? Yeah, yeah. Father, son. What does it sound like? Uh, Father, son, holy hermit. Oh, there you go. So it sounds to me like (laughs) God the Father, God the Son, and you've got some sort of spiritual component there that is the spirit, right? That talks to all the people and loves to pray and can absolve you. And so in the only weird caveat there is that the boy goes bananas and calls him the devil. So that's a little strange. Sure. But I think there's an echo of the Trinity in those three people that are chosen. The angels are the things that see him home, right? And then all of earth kind of conspires to make sure he hits, hits the ground. And then his job is to go and spread that story everywhere. Essentially the story of love, the story of God's love. Right. You also have that wonderful imagery of, they say he hung... Rather than a cross, they hung the albatross across, on his neck. Like, he had to take up his cross. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a couple of other times where he lies sort of with his arms outstretched wide and cruciform. And so I think sort of underlying this weird, seemingly pagan story where there's all kinds of spirits that get involved, but there are also seraphs, right? There are straight-up angels that come down and get, in, get into the mix. But he, his sin ends up in the deaths of many others and in his life and death. Right? So as he dies, he therefore gains new life. All right, so tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. No, I think you're I think you're onto something. Um yeah. you've, you've clearly thought about this more than we have, so um, of course I'm not gonna shoot that down. Okay. Cole, well, I think Coleridge loves building a certain like aesthetic. Like I think he likes the whole mixing of the like with the wacky spirits, the sort of like Orientalism of the Romantics that they love the sort of you know the the spirit realm and the ghosts and the and the um, you know these great mixing that also with some kind of semblance of Christian orthodoxy and yeah yeah so is the weirdness more the point than the moral at the end I always think so okay I always think with the Romantics it's it's um, um, okay hear me out. Um, it's like those Christian bands that do really hardcore, like re- play really hardcore music, or like do, like have like death metal as, but uh, but they say it's okay because we're like a Christian band, 
but clearly they just love the death metal right. or they just love the hardcoreness. Right. And, and they feel guilty just doing straight and up they death feel, metal. Yes, and they feel guilty just doing straight up death metal. And so they tack on their little like, you know, like, for the glory of God or whatever at the end of their metal, <laughs> right. uh, at the end of their album. I Jesus will save my soul. Yeah, I always <laughs> feel like Coleridge is a little bit like that in some of his poems where he just wants to go full on like wacky pagan craziness. Right. And maybe it's more so in Kublai Khan that he does this. And at the end, yeah. he sort of tacks on like, whoo. Ain't that nuts? But um, now Go we're to back. Church, now we're back in Merry England, where we have churches and and the Trinity. And but I always get the sense that Coleridge just wants people to read that poem and be like, "Oh man, I freaking love that hardcore like water stuff, uh, or that, that like awesome you know good death death boats." Right. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. it feels to me like one of those weird '70s animations where <laughs> it's like a like a milded down shroom trip. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's talking to ghost boats. He's got, like, weird spirits guiding the boat. There are mm-hmm. snakes all over the place. You know, it's, it's one of those. One of those. <laughs> like. um, fun fact. Um, apparently, in the Arctic waters in northern Canada, there is a ghost ship that people claim to see every now and then of a boat where all the crew died uh, on board, and, and, um, but it, it sails around every now and then and gets spotted. Weird. And people think, you know, it's full of... Wait, so it just hasn't sunk and it's just moving around with the wind? Yeah, well, it's I, I moving around with the wind and the waves, but then people think the ghosts are, like, steering it and stuff. Ooh. There's, like, a death boat up there. Creepy. Yeah, so. Canada's a cool place. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Yeah. So if you guys want to hear about the inspiration? Yes. Yeah. According to Wordsworth, one of his buddies, this poem was inspired while Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Wordsworth's sister Dorothy were on a walking tour through the Quantock Hills in Somerset. The discussion had turned to a book that Wordsworth was reading that described a privateering voyage in 1719, during which a melancholy sailor, Simon Hatley, had shot a black albatross. As they discussed Shevlock's book, Shelvock's book, Wordsworth proffered the following developmental critique to Coleridge, which importantly contains a reference to tutelary spirits. Suppose you represent him as having killed one of these birds on entering the South Sea, and the tutelary spirits of the region take upon them to avenge the crime. By the time the trio finished their walk, the poem had taken shape. So a tutelary spirit is a deity or spirit that protects a certain area, a certain person, a certain, like, it could protect blacksmiths. Like, that. it's the spirit of blacksmiths, and its job is to sort of protect and defend them. And so he kills this albatross, and the spirit, the tutelary spirit, sort of set upon them and seize upon them to, re- to wreak vengeance. Yeah. And my point is that Coleridge finds that much more interesting than, like... Actual Christianity. Yeah. I totally believe it. <laughs> yeah. But I do like the notion that he's kind of working in these religious themes that are maybe maybe deeper than sure. than surface level. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this little run into the sea. Sure. It's it's a fun crazy it's poem. A, it's a, it's a wild ride. The great thing is I read that and then I immediately read The Old Man of the Sea. I was really on a nautical kick there this you weekend. Sure. You should go home and watch uh some um Wes Anderson uh what's Oh, what's a Michael Zizou. The Life Aquatic with Mike with Steve Zisu. That's a good one. Yeah. Anyway, you should also read The Old Man of the Sea. There's no reason for me to do an episode on it because it is just so dang straightforward. Read it. It's an old man who goes fishing. And that's... Catches a big fish. fish. Big fish. Yep. That's it. Cool. Wonderful. Uh, This has been classical stuff you should know. I would have written some more, you know, rhyming poetry, but my performance was, uh, some might say, criticized, uh, torn apart by more negative elements of the podcast. Think of me like Coleridge's teacher. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> I could have done better. That is all, that is a correct statement. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash classicalstuff. 
you if you uh, support us on Patreon, you can get access to in-between episodes, which we're about to record after this. We also do monthly AMAs where supporters can pose questions to us that we will then answer. Those episodes are also typically very, very long. I don't know how long this one was. Probably about an hour. I don't remember. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. And we're on YouTube. I feel I don't, I don't know if we mentioned that very much, but we're also on YouTube if you want to see our pretty faces. Um, and watch our lights go on and off. That is a thing happening in the background that you might not realize if you're just listening is that the lights are going on and off all the time. It's a motion sensing light system and apparently we don't move enough. So such is life. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh, and we will be back again in a week. This is Thomas AJ and Graham saying bye. Ciao. Ciao.